Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome to the Olive Podcast. I'm Janine, Olive's deputy editor and podcast host, and each episode I'll be catching up with chefs, cookery writers, and characters from the food scene in Britain and beyond. Join us each week to expand your food knowledge as our guests share 10 things we need to know about the specialist subject. And do listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where they also reveal their top cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. I'm delighted to welcome Nick Sharma to the podcast today. Nick is a best-selling cookbook author, photographer and columnist, and his past career as a molecular biologist means he brings a unique science-based approach to his cooking and writing. He's written three books, The Flavor Equation, Season, and his latest, Veg Table, Recipes, Techniques and Plant Science for Big-Flavored Vegetable-Focused Meals. And we're going to talk all about that veg-focused cooking today. Welcome, Nick. Hi, Janine. Thanks for having me on your show. (laughs) Thank you for coming all the way from L.A. How's the jet lag? (laughs) I haven't had any. It's been really nice. Really? Yeah. It'll probably kick in, I would say, Thursday, Friday. But you've got the nice freezing weather to welcome you. (laughs) Um, Let's start with a little bit about your love affair with veg. There's a lovely story in the book about how when you were a child back in Bombay, you begged your parents to let you grow a chili plant, even though you said you weren't a fan of heat at that point. You just wanted the plant. Yeah, I... I think the thing is, people want things they don't have. Yeah. Right. And we grew up. I grew up in a small apartment, no outdoor space at all, and the only place you could grow grow plants was on your windowsill. Yeah. And so, I think we'd gone to a nursery, because my dad wanted house plants, and I saw a chili plant, and I saw a chili turning red. It was it was oh, transitioning yeah. from, from green, green to, to red, red. Yeah. and I thought that was the most magical oh. thing in the world at that point. Because as a child, you haven't really seen much of the world, and something so common just seemed so special, yeah. and I had to have it. And I remember my parents saying, um, "You, it won't last." They still got it because I insisted. It did last. <laughs> they were right. I didn't really pay attention to it. But I think for me, it was just so fascinating just watching that one chili yeah. um, transition in color. Color is something that's always attracted me to science, to food. Yeah. And just the joy of seeing that. And it didn't. I think it died because, if I remember correctly, it produced flowers. It was watered, maybe overwatered as most houseplants end up. Yeah. And... Growing it indoors, even in Bombay, even though it's so hot and humid, probably wasn't the best decision. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't make it. Yeah. And and now you've got a, a a lovely garden in L.A. that you use, I think you said in the book, as a kind of experimentation for growing all sorts of different things. What kind of things do you grow in it? Well, I have to say it's uh, experimental because it's a hot <laughs> mess outside. <laughs> when we bought the house, yeah. we took out all the rubbish that was growing. We had a lot of vines and right. things covered and a lot of scary wildlife. So I had all of that cleaned up. And now we're in this phase where we're just trying to beat the gophers and make sure things... What do the gophers just eat everything? They just run through. So they actually, they're looking for bugs. And when they run through the ground, if they come across any roots, yeah, they nip it from the bottom. Oh. And then in the morning when you wake up, you'll see the stem falling down. Oh, so it is the most challenging, <laughs> non-fun thing to happen. But... 
Uh, I've been using it as an experimental space to just try new things because living in LA, the weather is hot. Yeah. A lot of things that I could grow in India or seen growing in India earlier. Yeah. The climate is perfect for that. Right. And a lot of the nurseries will sell those plants. So I've been growing curry leaves. Yeah. Um, and they grow so well outside. I never bring them indoors. I've got a drumstick tree yeah. that gives me one drumstick every year. But it's still so much fun. Yeah. So in that sense, I've really had a fun time just exploring different things. And of course, lots of citrus, because that's the best place yeah. to grow citrus. I love it. Let's move on to the book. And can we talk about um, some flavor boosters you can have in your pantry? Because obviously, you know, I think with a lot of the recipes, there's the veg and how we prep that. And we'll talk about that later. But then you just bring in these massive kind of umami flavors as well. Can we talk a bit about that? Yeah. My goal in life is to make people's cooking in the kitchen easier. Yeah. And the easiest way to build flavor, save a lot of steps, is to have a well-stocked pantry. I yeah. think the pantry is kind of not even the Pandora's box, but it is the treasure trove in the kitchen. And often in recipes, we tell people, go and buy a jar of preserved lemons or go and buy harissa. And then what do you do with it yeah. after that one recipe? So my goal is always to give people, OK, you're going to use preserved lemons today, but tomorrow you're going to use it here, but in a different way. Yeah. And that way you get the most for your money and the time that you spend going out yeah. to the grocery store. Because you've got a great recipe, I think, for tempura preserved lemon, which is, I've never seen anyone use it. I did, okay, so one of the things I love about, I love fried food. I'm not yeah. going to lie. I love fried <laughs> food. I love the crunchiness of it. Yeah. But sometimes it can feel a little just heavy on the palate yeah. and greasy. And so one way to I find to overcome that is to add some kind of acid in there. Yeah. And preserved lemons are salty, but they're also a little bit tangy. Yeah. Just right. It's just right. And so if you put that in there, it is so amazing. It feels like it's more, It's so delicious and it's enjoyable. And at the end of the day, yes, food is about nutrition, but it's also about the senses. Yeah. So you have to pleasure them. And you're a big fan of miso, aren't you? You've got this incredible, uh, it's like a broccoli pasta with miso, which I've made. And it's just so punchy. I love it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I like miso because it's, again, one of those things, because it's fermented, it literally lasts Forever yeah. in the refrigerator. And I prefer using white or yellow miso because the salt is a little bit less. So you can control White's the amount of salt. a bit sweeter as well, isn't it? Yeah. It's rather nice, yeah. And when you put it into pasta sauces, for those people who don't like anchovies, yeah. that is your umami booster. And I found that miso will also thicken sauces a little bit yeah. because it's made from beans. It has a little bit of starch. And... Phenom like it's a phenomenal way, really easy shortcut to add umami. Yeah, I think people might be a bit reluctant because they'll think miso, Japanese, it's going to make my pasta taste Japanese-y. But it, it, it doesn't. doesn't. No. no, it just bo it enhances the flavor. Yeah. And a lot of like pasta dishes will carry uh, the Italians like to use Parmesan or um, what am I forgetting? Some other, what other cheeses? Um, Asiago. Oh, yeah. yeah or, right? or like a, a blue cheese is very umami, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And then if you want to like build on that with umami, it's always great to add a second ingredient that is rich in those molecules for umami. Okay, right. And so you're building on that. And I use miso just for that reason. It'll I skip the fish. Yeah. It's not that I don't love anchovies. I do. But for those that people that don't want it, this is the perfect yeah. option. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. How did you make that jump from 
because you you talk there about molecular. You know, how did you make that jump from molecular biology to? I mean, it's mad to cooking and writing about food. So the last part of my career in science was focused on metabolic diseases. I was working at Georgetown Hospital, which is when I went into blogging and all that yeah. fun stuff and got into food. But I was working on metabolic disorders, studying genetics and seeing how genes are involved in fructose metabolism, fat metabolism, diabetes, and also how they affected osteoporosis. Wow. And we were also dealing with people and just watching food behavior and how people approached food and how the science was taking place inside the cell was fascinating. Yeah. At the same time, I was entrenched in academia. I also decided to go to public policy school. Yeah. So I was going to public policy school in the evening at Georgetown. And there was nothing else to the conversations I could have with people in public. I was very one-dimensional and boring, in my opinion. <laughs> and... I said, I need to do something outside this. And I love to cook. Yeah. And I was cooking at home. I did want to go to cooking school as a child. And my mother comes from the hospitality industry. She works for hotels in management. And she said, you don't have the capacity to be a chef or cook. You're just not. You're very prissy. You ca I don't see you in a cold room peeling onions. And if your fingers bleed, you get cut. You're not the type to like go continue. Thanks, mom. So I said, maybe she's right. <laughs> You know, and so and Indian, you know, coming from an Indian family, yeah. I always pushed towards something a to little something more stable. Academic, yeah. As well, yeah. And so, not that my parents are academic by any means. Yeah. My, my dad's a photographer; he's retired. My mom's in hospitality. Yeah. None of them are like academically inclined. <laughs> but you, you make your kids do yeah. what you couldn't do, right? Yeah. And I did that, but then there was something that was just missing. I wasn't looking forward to waking up in the morning and going to the lab. I used right. to dread it. And during experiments, which are really long, sometimes you sit and you just vegetate and do nothing in the lab. Yeah. Blogs had come out. So I used to start scrolling these beautiful blogs and fell in love with photography. And I started to imagine myself, oh, you know, I've never traveled. I've never been anywhere outside India or America at the, at yeah. the point. These are people living in Italy. Look at them so romantically running around barefoot yeah. <laughs> in their kitchens, <laughs> sitting on top of their beautiful white kitchen counter spaces. How do I imagine myself doing stuff like that? Yeah. And so then, you know, I, I had started to cook for friends at the time, trying to show them um, I liked entertaining. I love entertaining people. And I'm also a very chatty person, as you can tell. <laughs> uh, so it was fun for me just to have people over and share food with them that I had experienced growing up in India, yeah. but also just reinterpreting things from my lens because I'd lived in two countries now. Yeah. And so I got to do that with them. And then a lot of my friends said, why don't you do blogs? That's how I got into and blogging. And got into that, yeah. And uh, that's what then first got me into the food world. And when we moved to California, so my husband got a job out in the San Francisco Bay Area. We moved there and I told him, I said, first of all, I'm not moving if we don't get married because I think my mother treats me better than that. I'm not moving for a man <laughs> and not getting married. So we're going to get married. And two, I said, um, I was working at a pharmaceutical research company at the time there. Wow. And I said to him, I said, now I have the opportunity to do something that I've always Different. wanted to do. Yeah. Let me dip my toes in it. And so I applied to a bunch of cooking schools out. I got into them, but I was scared by the loans. So I spoke to someone else who's a very famous pastry chef that lives in Paris, uh, David Lebowitz. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, he had written a blog post and he had said, you know, go work in a kitchen, see if you like it, and then think about cooking school. So that's what I did. I called, I think, 15 to 20 people in the Bay Area 
one lady reached out to me. Everyone else rejected me because they said, because of the blog, they felt I was overqualified. Oh, wow. Good. <laughs> and so she took me in. I staged for two weeks. I lied at the pharmaceutical company I was working at. And I said, hey, I have a family emergency for exactly two weeks. I will come in, get my experiments done. But I'll be in at 12 every day. Yeah. So I would go to the pastry shop at 4, finish my work by 11, go home, shower really quickly uh, because I was scared of the smell of cocoa come on my skin. Because you're, if you're walking in a pastry shop, it's very aromatic. Yeah, of course. And I was so nervous that I would get caught in my lie. I didn't. <laughs> um, I loved it so much. And after two weeks, even though the pay was miserably low, yeah. I told my husband, okay. He said, you know, it's fine. You need someone to support you when you take these risks. I'm not going to yeah. lie. Um, but my husband was very supportive and I loved it. I was finally excited. I could see, I would be happy to wake up at 3 a.m. Yeah. I think the only time I was happy to wake up at 3 a.m. was as a child to watch cartoons in the yeah, morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or uh, Christmas morning. Yeah. <laughs> and I was having that same feeling again. So it was such a joy to go in. The staff and the chefs were so friendly in there. I learned so much. Did wow. that for a year and a half. Then we moved to San Francisco, to the city. Um, and a tech company hired me to be their food photographer. Oh, okay. So you got it in that way. Yeah, yeah. And I liked it, but I also hated it. And I was very scared of losing something that I, hating something that I actually fallen in love with. Yeah. Uh, my manager was miserable. She said, your photographs are really beautiful and consumers are complaining. So they had a food delivery app that would deliver food to people. The chefs would cook these different dishes uh. and sell them. They said, your photos on the app look really beautiful. They're too but good. That's not what con consumers are receiving. <laughs> so they're getting upset. And she would constantly put me on notice. Oof. And I said, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm doing what I'm, you hired me to do to photograph beautifully yeah. and style. She said, no, it needs to be more realistic, more tangible for people. And I was miserable. Yeah. So I said, you know, I think I need to quit. I had signed my first book deal. And I said, OK, I have some money from that to support me. I need something else. I started reaching out to people. Uh, reached out to the editor at the San Francisco Chronicle, who was Paolo Lucchesi at that point. Yeah. And I met up with him and I said, hey, I'm looking for freelance photo jobs. Here's my portfolio. He said, OK, fine. I'll come back to you in, a, in some time. And I said, oh, gosh, he's never going to come back because he's the editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. Three weeks later, I waited for two weeks and I said, OK, nothing's happened. Three weeks later, I get an email from him saying, hey, we'd love to meet. I'd love I need to meet up with you again. So we meet up and he says, so I spoke to my team. We don't think you should do freelance photography for us. And I said, oh, why did he call me to meet, like to reject me? Like, why are we meeting in person? I could have cried at home <laughs> privately. And he said, we actually want you to be our featured food columnist. Oh, wow. And I said, really? Like, why? <laughs> and he said, your photographs are beautiful, but we also feel that you approach flavor in a very different way yeah. that we haven't seen. So we'd like you to come on as the featured food columnist. You'll have your column in print as well as in digital format. And we won't interfere. Do what you want, because that's what makes it's your like work. It's like the dream. Right? I mean, who does that happen to? <laughs> and I did that for, I think, five and a half to six years before yeah. we moved to Los Angeles. And I loved it. Yeah. And since then, I have written for different places. Like I wrote for The Guardian. Yeah. I did a guest column. And you do Series Eats column, don't you? I do, yeah. yeah. And then I've contributed to The New York Times as well. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think my career has been such that if, if I didn't take risks, 
I wouldn't be where I'm at. Yeah. But I'm also indebted to the kindness of so many people yeah. that open doors for me. But you're right. You have to push those doors as you well, You have to push. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. God. And I mean, I love the fact that, you know, you, you mentioned that your your scientific background, it, it, it goes all the way through your work and this book. I mean, a couple of things we were going to talk about uh, with cooking technique, because you're a big fan of roasting, aren't you? Um, and often you say roasting's better than obviously steam and microwave and boiling. What what does roasting bring to the party? One of the things I learned during my research, because yeah. I love going down these research rabbit holes a lot, um, I learned that roasting is actually a really great method because it dries things out a little bit. Yeah. So if you're looking for those crunchy, drier textures and nice skin on top, yeah. that's your method to go to. The problem with microwaving, steaming, and boiling, a lot of those methods are quite classic, yeah. right? So it's hard to convince people not to do them. Boiling, one of the things boiling does is that it draws anything that's water-soluble away from it, right. from the food. So it pulls it out. So vitamin C, some nutrients. They go into water, you're tossing them, it's a waste. A lot of flavor is lost. And the chemistry of cooking is such that with roasting, because the temperatures are a little bit higher, it's a little bit drier, the conditions are just right to yeah. allow the caramelization of sugars in food, as well as the Maillard reaction, which is another reaction that occurs between the amino acids of certain, uh, certain amino acids of yeah. proteins and sugars. So when you have those two reactions taking place, you get these beautiful, bittersweet, nutty yeah. aromas and flavors that develop. The color changes. It becomes more toffee. You can't really achieve that properly with microwaving and steaming and boiling. Boiling, yeah. Those methods are great. And I think steaming is actually better than boiling. Because it's less. It's less contact with water. Into the water, yeah. But in terms of flavor development, roasting will always, and stir frying, yeah. will always be superior Because methods. everything kind of stays in the yeah. in place. And there's it? not a lot of water to keep the temperature down constantly because yeah. when you're cooking, the temperature of... Because water has such a high capacity, an abnormally high capacity to absorb heat, yeah. if you have something filled with water, it never goes beyond the boiling point of water. Oh, okay. And if you don't have that much water when you're roasting in an oven, things start to brown because they go yeah. above... 100 degrees Celsius. Yeah. I think we're seeing that though. I, I know, uh, for example, it's super trendy at the minute to do like roasting, um, you know, hispy cabbage. It's on every menu at oh the minute, gosh, like yeah. char grilling it. I hate that. And then though. roasting it to like, <laughs> you hate hispy cabbage or you because hate Because it's the so trend? trendy, I hate it. I hate <laughs> trends. <laughs> Really? Okay. Well, you probably started some, so you might be, you might be part of the problem, Nick. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and another scientific thing, I know that you, um, in a couple of recipes, you're using um, baking soda or bicarb. We would call it bicarbonate soda in the UK. So what, what does that do to vegetable cooking? I studied in India, so yeah, I'm familiar with bicarbonate. <laughs> <laughs> I did my temperature conversion earlier, if you noticed. Yeah. For you, yeah. Um, yeah, so sodium bicarbonate is one of those amazing ingredients that I feel just does so much yeah. Beyond baking. You know, we use it as bakers constantly. I worked as a pastry chef. So, you know, baking your cakes and stuff, great uh, leavening agent to add air into food. Yeah. But in cooking, it creates an alkaline pH, which means that it is higher than the uh, pH of water. Water is at neutral. Right. And it's higher than an acid like lemon juice. What that does is it acts like a catalyst. It provides an environment that helps the caramelization of sugars and the Maillard reaction yeah. to proceed with extra fast speed. 
and during cooking. And so your browning and all those things happen really fast. So if you're looking to brown, caramelize your carrots and stuff, any vegetable or uh, fruits that have a lot of sugar, like onions, and it'll make them brown really beautifully faster. The other thing that it does, it's a great solubilizer for pectin. Pectin is is a structural carbohydrate present in vegetables, which gives them firmness. So like a quince, for example, it's a fruit, but it's really stiff and you have to cook it down in order to make a lovely quince preserve. And that's because the pectin is just so... Yeah, you've got to cook it forever, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so to soften it, you can do a couple of things. And one is add sodium bicarbonate. And what it does is the sodium and sodium bicarbonate pops the calcium out from pectin and makes it softer. Yeah. And... What I found that with a lot of vegetables, if I want to make a soup really fast, like a root vegetable, um, add a tiny pinch of sodium bicarbonate, it'll help the process move a little smoothly. Another thing that I learned, uh, this is from a lot of industrial food papers that I read constantly, because they have some (laughs) fantastic ideas that you can extrapolate. And one of the things I learned was in, in in the industry, to make commercial soups for them vegetables, they'll add a little bit of sodium bicarbonate because it helps the caramelization of flavor. Really? Makes it softer, which, you know, I've just mentioned both of those points. Yeah. But it also helps thicken the soup. Okay. And it does this in a really unusual way because it starts to play with starch, if there's starch inside. And it makes it looser. It makes it much more amenable to binding water and forming yeah. these gels and bonds inside. And phenomenal. So I started doing that. And if you do it, especially if you're pressure cooking your vegetables, right, you'll get an even better result. So on a practical level, say, if we were doing uh, like roasted carrots or like roast potatoes, for example, mm-hmm. which is, you know, Sunday lunch, you if you were parboiling them, you would put the a pinch of bicarb in the water to parboil the potatoes and then roast them and it would work that way? So you can do it twice. Okay. So I know I love the original Elizabeth David method where she boils them and then just like aggressively shakes them yeah, in a bowl and, with and a little bit of oil and salt. To get the bits yeah. on the side, yeah. So she uses salt, yeah. which does a very similar thing because right. it has sodium. It's yeah. not really about so much about pH as some people point out. It's actually about the sodium being present. Oh, okay. And if you overwhelm or you add a lot more sodium in the form of sodium bicarbonate, yeah. then you're adding a different chemical that also has sodium in there that also pops. Oh, right. So it's like it's being popped twice, kind twice. of. Yeah. And when the sodium goes in there, it just becomes softer. So if you add it during boiling, it'll make the starch granules inside looser. Yeah. So you get that creamy texture. And then when you pull them out, toss them with olive oil. You can still add baking soda, tiny pinch of baking soda and salt. And then spread it out on the sheet. You'll get a nice crispy, crunchy texture, but it also browns faster for that very reason. Okay, I'm trying that on Sunday. I've got. I've never. Tried, I've never heard of that before, and I'm definitely going to try it. Um, there's also there's a lot of talk around processed and ultra processed food at the minute, um, probably in your country as well as here. Um, but fresh is great, but canned and frozen do have their place, don't they? Absolutely, and I'm very frank about this because when I was I grew I didn't grow up in a wealthy family at all. I grew up in a low middle income family in India. Yeah. Came to America, was on my own, not making enough money as a graduate student, just surviving. And canned, fresh, fro- uh, canned, frozen is fine. Yeah, I think there's so much shame attached, especially in this day and age. I feel writing about food is a privilege. Yeah, being able to cook every day is also a privilege. We should 
think about it. Yeah. I'm not a fan of fads and calling food clean diets yeah, and all that stuff. Absolutely. It aggravates me quite a bit. Yeah. And I think we need to get out of this phase of writing and telling people, don't use canned or fresh because it's not superior. First of all, we're living in a day and age where technology is constantly updated. Companies are spending millions of dollars to improve uh, the canning processes, how the food lasts, the texture and stuff. So in that point, we're not eating food from World War II. No. So I think that's something we need to think about. And sometimes I personally, as a person who writes recipes for a living, I forget to brine my beans or soak them. Yeah. I'll literally just pull out a can of beans, beans and use them. Beans are great. They're, yeah. they're a great one. I've, I've got a, a cupboard full of chickpeas, beans. You know, they're just so... Convenient. And they're, they're so good for you as yeah. well to have that at, at hand. And also, I'm a huge fan of frozen spinach because a bag of spinach is just... Yeah. It's just a lie, isn't it? You just yeah. get this... I get a 500-gram bag of spinach cook, you know, wilt it, mm-hmm. and you end up with a handful, and that's just... One of the things, yeah. you know, like about the convenience, people also forget that frozen vegetables are actually quite superior in many cases to yeah. fresh vegetables because one of the things the food industry does to monitor quality of food and deterioration is to measure vitamin C content constantly in food. Okay. And vitamin C is a heat-sensitive vitamin. Yeah. It gets destroyed as temperature rises and as time progresses because when you remove a vegetable or fruit from a plant... It's dying. It's on its way to death. And all the biochemical activities that start taking place inside, one of the things that happens is vitamin C starts to get degraded. Plus, if it's not stored properly, the heat will destroy the vitamin C. And so you know the quality is is not as good. So when produce is taken and frozen immediately, if it's chopped, frozen, it probably has very high nutrient quality compared to something that's even sitting at the farmer's market. Wow. And that's something people need to consider that, you know what, I don't want to chop vegetables. I'm going to buy it pre-chopped frozen. Mm. It's fine. And in many recipes like stews, curries, that crunchy texture is not essential. You're anyway going to cook it down. Yeah. So what's the problem in using that? Yeah. Also, I mean, and I think another thing that you're a big fan of is, you know, no waste using all parts of the veg. It, it gets rid of that because you just taken what you need when you need it mm-hmm. from the freezer straight mm-hmm. and there's nothing going off in your chiller cabinet. Absolutely. And if people are wondering about the waste at the side of the company, yeah. a lot of these industries are saving cost anyway by taking the waste products and using them for something else. So onion peels, for example, yeah. the dried onion peels, I tell people don't use them in making stock because they're rich in polyphenols. Okay. Like, uh, what is it? Quin- not What is the health pill that they sell right now? That It starts with Q. Quin- not quinone. Is it quinone? Q- Q- Quercel. Oh. Or quercetin. I think it's quercetin, yeah. Quercetin is, I might be pronouncing this wrong because we didn't study about this in school. (laughs) So I didn't learn how to pronounce it. But quercetin um, is a chemical that's extracted from the dried onion peels because they're so rich in it. So the pills that you see in uh, health stores comes from waste onion peels. And pectin is is actually sourced from waste potato peels because potatoes are really high oh, source yeah. of pectin more than oranges. So often the pectin you buy to make your jams and help it set. It's coming from potatoes. potato peel. Yeah, because it's a richer source, much more easily extractable. And so if you're worried about what the industry is doing with terms of waste, often it maybe it goes to compost, which is also a good thing, but it's also being used to produce doing other interesting things. Interesting things. I love that. Um, I wanted to talk about a couple of lesser known, at least here, veg in your book, because I'm really fascinated by it. Um, you've got a section on cooking with nopalitos, which is cactus, yeah. right? I mean, when did you start working with them? 
So every book I've written, I have a muse or a challenge that I take on. In this case, the muse and the challenge, I told my editor, I said, hey, I think I really want to drop the idea of doing cocktails or drinks and vegetable-based desserts because that just sounds insane to include in a cookbook. <laughs> it's stupid. I feel if, you know, we want to encourage kids or people to eat yeah. vegetables, learn how to appreciate the texture. They're really young. They are, this yeah. is when you need to set the stage. Yeah. And she said, fine, let's do dinners. And I said, yeah, let's just focus on making easy, approachable meals yeah. for people. And I said, okay, the other challenge I'd like to do in this book is let's get that space to at least five or six vegetables that I have never cooked right. as a challenge for me. But I've seen it being used in different parts of the world. Yeah. So in America, we've got a large Hispanic population and... The Afro-Caribbean community as well uses a lot of these vegetables. Yeah. So we included cassava, cassava yuca. Yeah. I wanted to showcase the difference between what we call sweet potatoes and what are African yams. Yeah. And so shockingly, they're really easy to find. If you find a Nigerian or African grocery yeah. store, so you can just find a African yam, which is so different from a sweet potato. It's not sweet at all. It's starchy. And then nopalitos, as you mentioned, cactus. That's a huge thing. After moving to L.A., Almost every Mexican restaurant that we've been to serves a grilled cactus salsa or they'll just grill cactus and put it into tacos. It's quite lovely. And for a vegetarian, that's it's quite a filling vegetable. Yeah. And it's easily grown. You don't need a lot of resources. We've got a cactus paddle plant outside, which is from where um, actually all the photos for the cactus oh, really? are from, from there, yeah. my plant. And um, it produces fruit, which is the, the cactus pears, which are quite tasty. But such a fun thing to do. Like yeah, you were talking, we were talking about experimenting in the garden yeah. and then bringing it in. For me, I said, okay, I it's not part of my heritage or my culture. Let me reinterpret these ingredients in a way that would be comfortable to me uh, as a starting point. And then I can show people if I can use it. You, yeah. so you can use it whatever way you want I love to. That. And have you had any feedback from people in those communities who, you know, for, for, the, for your recipes that you... Absolutely. So I initially, my... The worst review that I got on, you should never read your reviews. No. And this is as someone who's done three cookbooks now, made the mistake <laughs> of reading it. Um, on Goodreads was a, from this lady who said, who eats okra, uh, yuca, sweet potatoes, and cactus paddles? This was an American. Like and half I said, the world. <laughs> right? And I'm thinking in my head, what is familiar to someone or what is unfamiliar to yeah. you might be familiar to someone else. So the goal of a book is to encourage, or my books at least, is to encourage people to try something new, push them in a new direction. Yeah. And then if you can't accept the diversity of vegetables, how do you accept the diversity that people bring to the table? I know, and so shockingly, everyone else has been so excited. I've got a lot of Hispanic writers who in the food world who said, wow, I'm so happy you actually just threw this into a general cookbook and didn't care. I said, no, I actually cared. I was terrified. But I'm so glad that people are seeing it in a positive light because yeah. I want people to eat out of their comfort zones, but also in a comfortable space. Yeah. Try something new, but do it with your own lens. Yeah, I love that. And, and I also love the fact that there are some, I, I guess, lesser loved veg in there. Um, I know you're a fan of stuffing and rolling vegetables. And we, in Olive, we ran your gorgeous, uh, it was a, a stuffed cabbage roll and it was stuffed with spiced beluga lentils in a tomato sauce. And there's a beautiful picture in the book of like all the little cabbage rolls and buried in their tomato sauce baked in the oven. I mean, it's 
it's like 70s on a plate, but in the best possible way. <laughs> so like... you're absolutely right. My grandmother <laughs> used to make this. My grandmother, my late maternal grandmother, Lucy, uh, she's going. Yeah. And so a lot of her food was influenced by the Portuguese Oh, okay. um, and very a lot of like Anglo Indian flavors in yeah. there, uh, and so she loved stuffing anything with meat. She was a big meat eater, big wine drinker, and a big meat eater, yeah. which that's, is kind of funny. That's the Portuguese right? influence. It's right? really funny when people say, "Oh my gosh, you're Indian, your family drinks." I say, "Yeah, my grandmother used to drink every evening, have like a sip of port wine yeah. to call the you know for her nightcap." Yeah, but. Uh, yeah, like I learned to make that dish with her because I would watch her and she would stuff cabbage rolls uh, with ground beef that was spicy seasoned and cooked nice. and then cook them in her own version yeah. of this tomato sauce. When she passed away, I inherited her cookbook. And her handwritten cookbook. Her handwritten notes, oh, yeah. The two things I inherited, her cookbook uh, with her notebook and then also her Port wine set because I, I used to just love watching my grandmother drink oh, port really? wine in the evening with like the little glasses with the, the little, little glasses, glasses yeah oh, fantastic and so we've you know I've got that now at my home in LA yeah. and um and also a cloche for a, a cake uh thing that's yeah. etched beautifully oh I love and that. so I have those three things with me and in her notebook she talks uh, she doesn't talk she just writes. Yeah. And she actually wrote amounts, which was amazing for me. That's very unusual. Very isn't unusual, it? yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think maybe the goal was to hand it down to her daughters. Except for my mom, the other two daughters are excellent cooks. Yeah. And uh, my mom just hates cooking. And so learn how to do this, watch her roll those cabbage rolls. And I said, that would be a lovely dish to make vegetarian because I think it would be so easy to translate. And I could see people taking cabbages doing something fun and different. And this yeah. is something you can do with your kids, get them into cooking or do it as a family project or even at a party. It looks so impressive as it's well. It's so fancy, right? But it's not. Yeah. You just take your cabbage leaves, make a little V, uh, an upside down V gash at the corner where the stem meets where the, the, stem meets the, the thing. The, the sort of this. spine thing, yeah. yeah. And dip it into boiling water. You can even pour boiling water on it yeah. just to soften it a little bit. And then... Either buy store-bought mashed potatoes or use the potatoes that I give in the book. Fold them with cooked lentils. You can make all of these ahead of time. Yeah. Roll it up, make a little bit, make a little cigar. Kind of if uh, you're familiar with making dolmale like the Greeks yeah. and the Middle Eastern people do. Um, fold it up, put it into your pan, put canned tomato sauce. I'm a huge fan of canned tomatoes because the flavor is more concentrated yeah. and tastier and saves you cooking time. <laughs> You don't get, otherwise you're sitting there for hours. Well, we are, I mean, in this country, the, the tomatoes at this time of year are shocking anyway. So <laughs> so canned tomatoes are, are a great thing to have. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love canned tomatoes, even though I come from LA. Yeah. And then I do a tarka. Tarka is an Indian technique where you basically heat some oil and you throw in a couple of spices of your choosing. In this case, it's nigella and cumin. Yeah. And then I pour it on top and it looks so glamorous when it comes to Gorgeous. the table and people think I've slaved for hours. And it also speaks to your like love of different textures as well, isn't it? Because you said you, you love to like build up those different flavors Absolutely. and textures. You know, one of the things I've noticed with a lot of vegetable cookbooks uh, that have been coming out and even vegetable recipes online, a lot of them are about chopping stir frying and as you mentioned, just cut things into wedges and roast them yeah. in the oven. I think we can do so much more. I love the way people in Singapore carve fruit. It's an art. It's incredible. Right? I've seen them do it as well. It's like, so beautiful. Yeah. And this isn't that. <laughs> but it's, in, to me, in my opinion, it kind of points towards that. Yeah. That you can just do so much 
more than what yeah. we're used to. Yeah, and I think because there's a lot of recipes I, I kind of made a note, there's, there's so many dressings and dips and sauces and chutneys that are all so you've got your your veg your hero veg and then you've got like a beautiful sauce to go with it or a beautiful dip like I think we had your spiced um, onion rings with buttermilk caraway dipping sauce as well and even just saying it I mean it just sounds delicious as well thank you and it's that thing of you know kind of preparing your veg and then going the extra mile to to prepare a gorgeous sauce to go with it I love that you mentioned there about your your grandma loving her meat and I mean this book it does have a little bit of meat you know in it you're not saying look give everything up I think it's it's just a nice stepping stone isn't it if you're thinking about incorporating more veg into your diet absolutely and that's my goal with people I'm not someone who's going to tell like hey you need to be clean eating or you need to eat more vegetables I'm not an expert in that I'm not an RDN a nutritionist and I'm also not well versed with I'm also not well versed with the environment and so my goal is to tell people hey if you want to consume more vegetables in your diet, Yeah, this is the book for you. If you're vegan or vegetarian, this is also the book yeah. for you because there are those recipes in there. And if you don't eat meat for whatever reason, it's those recipes are so easy that just drop the meat out. Yeah. If you like plant-based or lab-synthesized meats, I'm not going to stop you. Just add them in there. The substitutions are so easy. Yeah, yeah. And you give plenty of tips as well about making stuff. There's, there's the stuff which is naturally vegan in here anyway, but then you... you give tips about adding in, you know, using plant-based butter or something if you use that. But um, it's super inspiring. Um, I urge everyone to go out and buy it. Um, but thanks so much for coming to chat to us today. Thank Nick. you for having me. Um, this was so much fun. And when, if people want to find out where you are online, where, where should they be looking? You can find me on Instagram at a brown table. Yeah. Or you can go to my newsletter, which is called The Flavor Files, and it's on Substack. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for coming to chat to us, Nick. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Olive Podcast. For recipes and more information, head to olivemagazine.com. Do remember to listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where our guests reveal their best cooking cheats, hacks, and shortcuts. And don't forget to subscribe at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.